so that the filibustering begin. I rise today to begin to filibuster. I will speak until I can no longer speak. I will speak as long as it takes. I'm prepared to stand on this floor and talk about the need for this body to come together for frankly as long as I can because I know that we can come together on this issue. You can call what I'm doing today whatever you want. You can call it a filibuster. You can call it a very long speech. I'm not here to set any great records or to, to make a spectacle. I am simply here today to take as long as I can to explain to the American people the fact that we have got to do a lot better. Now let me just enumerate some of the reasons. We're engaged in a filibuster, a way to divert attention from what we're doing today, to obstruct, and that's what's going on today. Hello and welcome to Filibustering History, a podcast series where we discuss what historians do with their lives. I am Rob Denning, lead faculty for the history programs at Southern New Hampshire University's College of Online and Continuing Education. To my west, I guess, out in the smoky deserts of California is James Fennessy, the Associate Dean of Faculty for History at SNHU. James, say hello. 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 (laughs) And to myself in the, I don't really know Tennessee's weather. Humid, soupy, and southern. Okay. (laughs) To my soupy, humid, southern (laughs) direction is uh, Natalie Sweet, the program coordinator at the Abraham Lincoln Library and Museum in Tennessee, not the one you're expecting. So today we're going to be talking to Natalie about her career and what she does all day in this position. So what is your name and what do you do? Hi, I'm Natalie Sweet. Like you said, I'm the program coordinator here at the Abraham Lincoln Library Museum in Harrogate, Tennessee. What does it mean that I'm that program coordinator? Well, as I'm at a small museum, it actually means I do a number of jobs, everything from arranging speakers and outside programs to come to the museum and also crafting programs at the museum and developing our education department at the museum as well. So Natalie, why history? Can you give us a little bit of background on your education, what brought you into history, and we can use that to segue into how you then decided to utilize that history degree as a profession. Definitely, and I'm about to give a really good spiel for Mattel, because they are who bought Pleasant Rollings Company, the American Girl Doll Company. And back in the 80s, there was a really big push to teach girls from about the 8 to 9 age range about American history. The way they did it was, well, through some really expensive dolls at first, but those dolls came with really great books, and they were focused around a few different characters from American history. There was Felicity, who was the American Revolutionary War, Addie, who was the American Civil War, Molly, who was in World War II, and Samantha, who was a Victorian girl growing up just before the, well, really during the suffrage movement, the United States history. And my mother actually ended up buying me a club kit to become an American Girls historian. And what that did was it developed in me a love of history uh, for digging into the past, learning about other people's lives, but then also the idea of sharing what I learned with others. And that was always what really drove me to keep going forward into history was because I wanted to share the love that I developed from studying that as a young girl and share it with audiences too. Uh, Museum visits were particularly important to me when I was younger and I wanted to share that with others too, which was why 
the position of program coordinator was really attractive to me because in that position I work with the public. I actually had no idea that that was something that American Dolls did. I just assumed that it was something, they were just dolls that my niece or my friend's daughters collected and they had a flagship store a couple of blocks away from Rockefeller Center that sold very expensive dolls and clothing for those dolls. Oh, yes. It's really interesting. And someday I would absolutely love to do a study of women who were children in the 80s and 90s, because that was before Mattel purchased uh, the Pleasant Rowing Company. And Pleasant Rowing was the person who created the American Girl Lawn. And everyone I've talked to in that age group talks about how important the, to the development of their love of history that the American Girl dolls and books were because originally it didn't focus on girls from the present it focused on girls from the past so that's so someday that's a study I'm going to undertake just to see <laughs> well you heard it here first everyone in one of our next episodes <laughs> Natalie Sweet will be providing a detailed historical analysis of American dolls Yes. And at, this, at the same time, I'll give a historical account of G.I. Joe, which gave no inst no indication of history at all, but, you know, it gave you a nice appreciation for really big guns. Yeah, yes. If you're looking for collaboration on that project, please let me know. Okay. <laughs> James and I, you know, typical gender divide. Natalie's going to look at the, the serious stuff, and we're going to go blow stuff up. So we can, we, we can um, attribute your initial interest in history to the American Girl doll collection. Um, where did you start studying, and what was your, what was your academic career look like? Well, when I went into uh, university studies, what I originally was going to study was journalism or communication arts. And the main reason I was going to do that was because uh, my parents were convinced there was absolutely no way I could study history and be able to survive. <laughs> on Ouch. <that. laughs> I know, right? So I started out as a communication arts major, but thanks to professors who really just encouraged my love of history and the presence of a museum on the campus where I attended, which was Lincoln Memorial University, and is actually where the museum I work today is located. It just pushed me closer and closer and closer to going into the history world. I was able to have the opportunity to write history articles and have them published in some of our uh, local publications, like the Lincoln Herald that was on campus. I was able to work in the museum first as a a student worker on financial aid, and then I ended up interning and eventually receiving uh, some fellowship money from what was known as the Appalachian College Association to do special exhibit work within the museum uh, one summer. And it also gave me the opportunity to apply the summer of my junior year for the Gilder Lemon History Scholars Program in New York City, and they picked 50 university students from around the country to submit some of their papers that they'd written and they'd bring 50 up and we spent a great weekend learning from the best of American historians like James Horner. We took the historic New York City tours and that was pretty much when it became solidified that I would not be going into journalism and communication arts but instead I really saw a future for myself being able to take my history degree and do what I loved with it, which was working with the public uh, to teach them about the past and teach them about history and to make it fun along the way. What led from my undergraduate degree at LMU, I then went on to the University of Kentucky to do my master's work, and I took a little bit of a turn. 
while I was at the University of Kentucky. And that's because initially at uh, Lincoln Memorial University, surprisingly, I ended up focusing a lot on the American Civil War. No idea why that may have happened. That's shocking. <laughs> but... Yes, when I went to the university, yeah, no, we went to the University of Kentucky and initially was going to continue working on uh, just specifically American Civil War, uh, but uh, due to some changes within the department and unfortunately the death of a professor who might have once been uh, lead on my thesis, I ended up switching over to early modern history, to which when people hear that, they say, you did what? And I said, okay. So here's the connection between the American Civil War and early modern England and Ireland, which is where I ended up camping out for my master's in history. Uh, A big focus of my studies have been socio-political issues, uh, looking at how politics on the top level affects people, what we might consider to be just the general public or average everyday Americans, seeing out how policy affects them. And my master's thesis at the University of Kentucky ended up focusing on a man named James Fitzgerald, who was an earl in Ireland who uh, was taken from his father and was held by Queen Elizabeth in the Tower of London. If you've ever watched Game of Thrones and you remember the character of Theon, Basically, that's what Queen Elizabeth did with James Fitzgerald. He was her captive in hold for his father's obedience because there were rebellions taking place in Ireland. And so she eventually used that young man to send him back to Ireland to try to win the favor of the Irish public. That didn't go over too well, but it allowed me to explore the concept, the early modern concept of degeneracy how it could possibly be inherited from generation to generation or how the early modern uh, audiences thought that that could happen. And that was very useful to me when I eventually switched back again to doing American Civil War history because it made me look at American history in a way that I hadn't actually done before. We are very fortunate in the field of American history to have many sources available to us, and particularly if you're studying the life of Abraham Lincoln, which I spend a lot of time doing, if you're studying the life of Abraham Lincoln, we know so much about his life that we literally have a book where you can go on to and say, okay, this is what Abraham Lincoln was doing on this particular day. This was an action he took. The jump from having to go from Civil War history to early modern history where, you know, I was going off pieces of letters and fragments and trying to use my theoretical skills far more. I think it really benefited me when I eventually came back to looking at American history again because it made me look at American history from different perspectives and different angles that I don't think I would have done had I not gone on to get my master's at the University of Kentucky and studied early modern history. And it's currently benefiting my work at the moment because I'm also studying uh, Abraham Lincoln's White House. Uh, Back in 2012, I received a fellowship from the White House Historical Society. And I began to look at the lives of the people who worked with Lincoln and the effects that they may have had on his presidency and the pol- some of the policies that he adopted and developed. And so I'm looking with the White House, I'm looking at the public's view of the White House 
as both a private home but also that political space that belongs to the people and what that means in American thought. That sounds really cool. And what sources are you using to find the stories of these people that work with him? Are these existing paper collections at the National Archives, or where are you going for this stuff? Yes. Uh, the Library of Congress has held uh, quite a few pieces that I've been interested in. The interesting thing is that when you look at the life of Lincoln, you will be inundated with books and sources on his life. And that's because after he died, everyone wanted to give an account of what they knew about him. That's also dangerous because if you start looking too closely at some of the stories, you'll see that many things were misremembered or even, in fact, made up because everyone wanted to connect themselves to him. Right. And particularly in the case of people who, you know, we don't consider as famous, doormen, for example, or housekeepers. People weren't interested in their lives for their lives. They were interested in what they could possibly say about Abraham Lincoln. So trying to find those specific sources, most of those that you find give any insight into what their lives were like and their the day-to-day -day activity in the White House come after Lincoln's death when it's already colored by what their perspective is colored by what has happened and what they know the public expects from them to tell as stories. So digging into the National Archives, digging into the Library of Congress has been the really big task. So that kind of takes me back to that early modern, the benefit of having studied early modern history and looking for information and digging and looking and looking and looking and sometimes just chasing absolute dead ends. But we have, thankfully, uh, Abraham Lincoln's personal secretaries, John Hay and John George Nicolay, actually... Uh, kept pretty faithful diaries and letters of their time in the White House, and studying those papers allowed me to grab some things, particularly as I wasn't looking at books that they wrote later, where even then, you know, they cleaned up some of the things they were talking about. For example, they didn't tell about the night after the Lincoln's big soiree in 1862, where the servants were so happy after it was over that they took all the champagne down into the servants' quarters and then pretty much had a grand old time that night. Awesome. Those types of stories don't come <laughs> That's through. That's fantastic. <laughs> those types of stories don't come through, uh, but it does within those private diaries that they kept for their own selves. And two, been using a lot of the newspaper collections uh, that you can find at the Library of Congress, too, turning to their great digital resource, Chronicling America, which is online and which pulls together the resources of numerous libraries across the United States where I can actually go hunting for specific people who lived in the White House and come up with newspaper articles that in some cases talked about those individuals and that gave us insight too into what the public perception of the people who worked in the White House was. And while you took inspiration from your... Uh your time in early modern England and Ireland, I'm sure that accessing the resources and finding this information is a lot easier in relation to Lincoln. Oh, my goodness. It, it absolutely <laughs> is. It doesn't hurt either that I should add, I mentioned a little bit before that there are so many books on Lincoln. When I say there's so many books on Lincoln, literally he is the third most written about person in the English language. There's only two people that are written about more are William Shakespeare and Jesus. Those are the only two <laughs> that outpace him in the number of books that have been written. So I basically went from 
the problem of having hardly you know anything to work with and doing my best to work with that to having a saturation of sources that, that you then had to figure out okay where do I start what do I trust what do I not trust what do I have to keep in mind as I'm reading these sources Lincoln is a very intimidating topic to try to lie. a lot of times in the capstone courses I'll have students that want to write capstone projects on Lincoln and there's always kind of this awkward kind of come to Jesus moment where you're like well okay wait a minute you're gonna that means you're gonna have to engage with the existing literature about Lincoln that is a huge amount of work <laughs> and the yes. odds of finding something new to say are is, difficult especially is. if you don't have access to all of these documents like you're talking about at the Library of Congress National Archives or whatever if you're only going to be able to access kind of the the normal online sources that are available for Lincoln you're, it's going to be really difficult to find something new to say yeah, Rob and I were actually just talking about this in relation to um, Frederick Douglass earlier, where you might have, and it relates to Lincoln and any other figure, where you have an extensive history, but if a student is just new to the topic and comes across this this figure, and they're like, oh, wow, I just discovered so-and-so. I mean, <laughs> nothing's been written about this person. I really want to do a research paper on this person, and you have to kind of slow them down and say, that's fantastic. We all need to find our inspiration somewhere. I'm glad that you found this person or event that really interests you. Just be aware that this isn't necessarily a new topic. It's actually an extensively yes. researched and written about topic. Right. So I really do encourage you to continue to research and think about that topic. And one day you might find something that's brand new or a, a great new take on this person or this event. But for right now, you know, use that passion and that inspiration and really develop a background in that person so that you know what the historiography is. Oh, absolutely. In fact, the field of Lincoln is so big and so huge and encompasses not only scholars who have attained PhDs and studying at this intellectual level, but, you know, there are also public groups that surround him. And we call this in the field Lincolniana. And that encapsulates not only the scholarly study, but also the pop culture aspect of Lincoln. <laughs> Anything that involves Lincoln, any and all things, it's Lincolniana. Like, like alternate imagine. reality, Abraham Lincoln. Right. <laughs> and, <laughs> and even with, you know, non-professional historians, there are a lot of people out there who think that they are experts on Lincoln, <laughs> regardless of oh. their educational background and all that. <laughs> so it's just it's difficult to kind of get through though because there's people that publish books about Lincoln all the time that have no actual academic background they're either self-published or on a vanity press or something and so that that must be difficult to weed weed out also when you're doing some kind of a historiographical analysis on the works about Lincoln it is that's difficult it's also difficult uh, in working in a museum setting too people feel like they know Lincoln. I'm not certain if people who work with other presidents or other historical figures feel this as much with any other leader or world president, but people feel like there is a personal connection to Lincoln. For the past 15 years, when studies in the U.S. have been done of who the public thinks is the United States' best president, inevitably, with you know only a few exceptions every now and then for George Washington, Abraham Lincoln ends up at the top of that list and they identify with him as a person i think he encapsulates this idea of what we think is true of the american dream someone who came from a humble background didn't really have a lot of education didn't have to have sometimes that 
misnomer gets in there, didn't have to have a lot of education, pulled himself up by his bootstraps, and then here he is, President of the United States. And whether people identify with that personally or want to identify with that, it makes the telling of his past difficult sometimes, to say the least. And, and to go back to your point, too, about how difficult it is to say anything new about Lincoln, that's very true. There are excellent books about there on Lincoln's life, but not only Lincoln's life, about his cabinet members, about the war that took place while he's president. Things still can be found every now and then, though, but a lot of what's new to be found ends up being looking at Lincoln's relationship with people that perhaps we didn't think was as significant to look at, which is one of the reasons that when I work on my Lincoln studies, I've been focusing on his relationship with people that we would think of as servants. And I, I also imagine that Lincoln, everyone wants to claim Lincoln from a political perspective too. And in many ways, almost anybody can because mm -hmm. he was a Republican, but you know, f applying anachronistic modern standards to him, he was liberal <laughs> on like race mm -hmm. relations and stuff. So modern day Democrats can kind of claim him as one of their own because he's has this this progressive liberal tinge to him. Republicans also claim him because he literally was a Republican. You can get into mm -hmm. debates about modern ideologies and changing ideologies and all of that, but it's still it's easy for everybody to kind of claim him and he is so obviously a hero in American history that everybody wants to claim him and so I don't know how much that plays into like an individual person's belief that they know a lot about Lincoln but I think that's I think that might be part of it also it's just the ideological and even the political kind of perspective on all of that too no oh, I absolutely think so I mean if we look back to uh, 2007 2008 when President Barack Obama made his announcement that he was going to be running for the presidency. He did it in Springfield uh, as an Illinoisan with the old state capitol behind him, the one where Abraham Lincoln worked. He was pulling on that idea of legacy. But then again, too, let's uh, fast forward to 2016 uh, to the presidential election there. And I think we're pretty all well familiar that Donald Trump doesn't always give a lot of praise to a large group of people, but one of the things he was has been consistent in saying is that he believes there's the late great President Lincoln, and, and even he probably couldn't match up to Lincoln, although I think I saw in a recent interview maybe he thought <laughs> that that had slightly changed lately. But <laughs> and Barack Obama <laughs> and, and Donald Trump are pretty much the Trump. far extremes of the <laughs> <Yeah>. political <laughs> spectrum. Yes. Yeah. But both of those people see themselves as living in Lincoln's legacy and also being able to put a claim on that legacy, too. So it's interesting, and we see similar with that, I think, too, uh, with people and their political beliefs, too. So this is really cool that you're focusing on his relationship with servants and all of that, because, yeah, that's something that I'm not familiar with, and so I think that's really cool. What is the ultimate end game in this project for you? Are you thinking of writing this as a, as a book or an article, or are you just using this for your own personal interactions with people at your job? What are you going to do with all this stuff? Yeah, the ultimate end game will be a book for me. I have already done a few articles along the way. While writing the book, back in uh, 2013, I actually did an article for the Abraham Lincoln Association, uh, which publishes out of Springfield, Illinois. 
and it was looking at Abraham Lincoln's usher, William Slade, who was a free African-American in the Washington, D.C. community. If you've ever seen the movie Lincoln, you've seen Slade on screen. He has a pretty prominent scene with Lincoln and his son, Tad, talking about his life as a black man within Washington, D.C., But through most of the movie, he's also used to comedic effect for always trying to remind Lincoln to wear his gloves uh, because Lincoln was famous for not exactly caring about his appearance while he was president of the United States. But in reality, and this is something uh, that both Kate Mazur at Northwestern and I have written about extensively, is that that diminishes William Slade quite a bit because he actually was a leader within his community. He was friends with Frederick Douglass, and in digging at the Library of Congress and looking through the Frederick Douglass papers, I actually found some letters from William Slade after Lincoln's death when he was in the Johnson presidency saying, hey, if uh, you need me to say anything for you to kind of give you an up and help you out and maybe get in with the administration, you know, I can arrange that. So that adds an interesting point of view when looking at, okay, we've always credited with uh, Frederick Douglass being one of the first to be able to be admitted through the greeting line at the White House in addition to the white visitors who were visiting. But, you know, how did it come about, too, that Lincoln knew as much about the black community in D.C. as he did? And then we suddenly look and we see that his usher uh, attends 16th Street Presbyterian Church, where he knows most of the prominent African-Americans in the city, where he's friends with Frederick Douglass, uh, where he knows all these great thinkers and leaders. His wife is uh, pushing for women's suffrage rights, black and white, within the city, too. And so what happens when we see that Lincoln is having contact with individuals like this, uh, individuals who are looking beyond the 13th Amendment to the idea of voting rights contained within the 15th. Does that kind of erase this idea of a top-heavy Abraham Lincoln free the slaves, uh, helped give people the right to vote, or is it more of, you know, there are individuals in the community who are pushing him for these rights, and we need to take that into consideration. That's a great point, and one that comes up again when we look at Kennedy's presidency. Yes. You could actually draw a lot of parallels between those two. Is you know, is it so much Kennedy or himself, or is there this constant push from the community that's leading him to make these decisions? And it's worth exploring as much as we can. Excellent. Well, we will uh, look forward to the book publication, and we will... Have you? We will drag you back on here so you can talk about it with us. <laughs> yeah, but not before we get that American Dolls. Yes. So. Right. Yes, priorities here. <laughs> We've covered a lot of the stuff that you're working on now. Let's talk about what you, you know, what you get paid for uh, beyond mm-hmm. the the glamorous life of writing academic articles and books and all of that. So you are the program coordinator for the Abraham Lincoln Library and Museum in Tennessee. What is the Abraham? Lincoln Library Museum in Tennessee, and what do you do as program coordinator? Well, interestingly enough, not to be confused with the Abraham Lincoln Presidential Library and Museum in Springfield, Illinois, which uh, for all intents and purposes, that's Lincoln's hometown. We are located in Harrogate, Tennessee, because during the Civil War, little known fact, East Tennessee very much wanted to remain with the Union. And in fact, much like West Virginia, almost broke off 
from the state of Tennessee in order to form its own state in response to the outbreak of secession. Because Confederate armies marched in and because of the political power found in Middle and West Tennessee, East Tennessee was held into the state. But Abraham Lincoln was very much aware that when we talk about civil war and brother fighting brother, that that was absolutely what was taking place in East Tennessee. And there were not only battles and skirmishes that took place here, but also assassinations, uh, murders, families turning on one another, very public hangings to try to scare the local populace into maintaining its commitment to the state of Tennessee and thus to the Confederacy. And Abraham Lincoln had received many petitions from East Tennesseans. Andrew Johnson himself was an East Tennessean. Uh, Horace Maynard was another who led the push. And when uh, the General O.O. Howard, Union General, uh, was visiting Lincoln in 1863 in the White House, he recalled that uh, Lincoln was looking at a map of Tennessee and East Tennessee and said that the people there were loyal, and he hoped that when the war ended he would be able to do something to reward East Tennesseans for their loyalty before he could do anything to help the people of East Tennessee. Abraham Lincoln was, of course, assassinated in 1865. Uh, But O.O. Howard remembered this, and O.O. Howard would later go on to form such famous universities as Howard University in Washington, D.C. But when he heard there was interest in building a university in Harrogate, Tennessee, in Appalachia, a place where there hadn't been a lot of formal education. He stepped in and said he wanted to help spearhead this. He recalled the conversation with Lincoln and said that, you know, he would mobilize his networks, that he would help push to create a university here to help the people who lived in the area, if they would name it Lincoln Memorial University. And so that was agreed to. The university took on its name to become a living memorial to the 16th president of the United States. And so then what happened was the first board of that university was actually made up of Union and Confederate generals. And they donated things to the university, which then began to store all these items within their school. And they originally kept those items in what was known as uh, the Duke Building. And the Lincoln Room grew and grew, and people were able to go visit it. And so uh, they realized by about the 1970s, after they had been given thousands of documents, uh, after the Lincoln family itself had donated things to the university, that in actuality, they needed a bigger facility. And this is where Colonel Sanders comes in of uh, KFC fame. He gave the money to build the museum, and it's now the third largest private collection of Abraham Lincoln materials in the world, which means that as program coordinator, even though I'm in a very rural area, I get to work with a lot of cool things that you probably wouldn't expect. So as program coordinator, I also do education. So just yesterday, I was doing a Skype tour of our vaults with a classroom from Brazil. And I was holding Abraham Lincoln's hair. I was holding a signed copy, first edition copy of the Lincoln-Douglas debates and showing off Abraham Lincoln's signature while doing that work. So what falls to me is to share what we have in our museum and also help people understand 
Lincoln's legacy within the United States. And what I also do is I create opportunities for conversations about difficult topics within the present as well. Since Abraham Lincoln is this lightning rod for divided conversations in both his own day and today, we're able to talk about things like citizenship, like the Constitution, uh, things like the 13th, the 14th, and the 15th Amendments. So I create programming based on those ideas and based on Lincoln's life. Now, I got sidetracked for a minute, and I want you to explain something that you just said, because yes. I want to know if Abraham Lincoln was sick or what in what context you are holding Abraham Lincoln's hair. In what context am I holding <laughs> Abraham Lincoln's hair? Okay. I think people might be interested in that little detail. <laughs> this Presumably, this is not like after a night of drinking. Exactly. No. Okay. This was... This Although that was would be very actually, nice of you. Oh, I know. Right now. No, Lincoln was a teetotaler, which is sometimes surprising and not always uh, <laughs> expected by people when I tell them this. <laughs> yes, but the hair was actually a clip of hair that was cut from his head after he was assassinated. It was practiced in the 19th century that when loved ones died, that was when you tended to cut locks of their hair. And in fact, it was uh, fashionable there for a while in the 19th century to create wreaths of family hair where different people's hair would be cut from their head and added into artwork that was then formed into flowers and things and hung on people's walls. But this was a lock that was taken just after the assassination. We also have locks of hair from his wife, Mary, and also from his son, Willie, who died in 1862 when he was 11 years old. So sometimes we get to pull those things out. <laughs> I am so in the wrong line of work. Seriously. <laughs> And oh, I have yeah. a history degree. <laughs> yeah, I know. I do not get to play with anyone's hair, though. That's amazing. I mean, this brings to mind all kinds of like questions about how do you preserve human hair for that long, or does it just because it? I don't even know where to start. That's amazing. Uh, does it continue to grow after it's been cut in your hair? <laughs> um, that that is <laughs> no. That doesn't happen. <laughs> I, I can tell you all sorts of stories about hair. Thank, hair thanks to my early modern training and my 19th century training. But no, uh, with human hair, what we do is we keep those in special, well, for Lincoln's hair, we keep it in a special container. But before we had it, it was actually on display uh, at another museum that we had acquired it from. And unfortunately, it had been kept in conditions that wasn't the greatest for preserving the color and quality of the hair. But more than that, too, sometimes people get a little confused when they look at it and has a little bit of a reddish tint. A fun fact for you, when you dye, the pigment that is the strongest and will survive is actually the color red. So as time passes by, the red comes through much more, which is why when you see mummies in Egypt, that their hair looks red. It's that pigmentation, that's that strong pigmentation coming through. And it's also so just another example why us gingers are superior. Yes, yeah, you do have the superior hair. <laughs> you rule in the afterlife. Yes, in the afterlife, just not here on Earth. No. In death, we're all gingers. <laughs> I need to make a shirt. 
but yeah, so we have that, and actually having the hair and talking about the changes in color, because sometimes very inquisitive students will know that Abraham Lincoln's hair should be pure black, and then they're asking questions about that. That gives us all sorts of opportunities, too, to talk about how do we protect things at the museum, how do we display things at the museum, how do we talk about things that exist within the museum as well, some things that, you know, are not always comfortable to talk about or show. So just looking at this from a career perspective, how did you get into this position? Did you start at a different position at this organization, just work your way up? Was it because of your connections to the university when you were a student? How did you actually end up in this role? That's a good question. So the way I ended up in this role was when I began as a student, my first freshman week, I was told that I could get a work-study job on campus uh, due to my financial aid qualification. And they said, where would you be interested in? And I said, can I work at the museum? And they said, sure. So I immediately marched down and began talking to the program coordinator who was here in the position at the time because what I really wanted to do was tours within the museum. So I trained as a docent. I gave tours at the museum. I eventually was allowed to start working on my own programs. So I started a newsletter for kids called Lincoln Letters for Kids. And it was a quarterly publication and it was a little newsletter where I wrote the types of things that I had found out in my American Girls publications and that I loved and that I remember the thrill of getting that as a kid And I wanted to recreate that for other kids to get them excited about history, too. So I replicated that. And once I graduated, I went on to graduate school and was primarily focusing on the academic end of it. But I still continued to volunteer here at uh, the Abraham Lincoln Library and Museum. So when they needed an extra hand to go up to Ford's Theater in Washington, D.C. and install an exhibit, that our museum was putting on. I went up to D.C. with them and helped with the installation. When they needed extra tour guides, I would step in. Uh, When the other programmer retired, I applied for the job, and then I got to basically do what I'd always wanted to do, which was get to work with people and hopefully make them as excited about history as I'm excited about history. That's very cool. And before we move on to talk about recommendations, are there any... Do you have any suggestions for students that are finishing up either an undergraduate degree or even a master's degree to help them get into a field like yours, assuming they haven't been working their way up the ladder kind of like you have? But if they're looking out, looking for a job now, what types of advice do you have for them? Well, some of the best things that you can do in our field is to really get in touch with professional organizations that help you network with other historians and museum professionals. For example, I'm a member of the Southeastern Museum Conference uh, and the Tennessee Association of Museums. And at those functions, we have students who attend, and there are often scholarships available to get students there. And it's a great opportunity for you to get to know people uh, who work in your field and who can alert you to uh, opportunities within your area, within your field. I should note that the museum community is a pretty tight-knit, close community, particularly where I'm located. I know all of the museum professionals in East Tennessee, and they know me. 
So when we need something for our museums or we need help with something programming-wise, we get in contact with each other. And those are really the type of people that can help give you a leg up and be a great reference for you when you move on and are trying to find a permanent position of your own. Well, I will say one thing about programming. The greatest success for me as a museum programmer and developing educational programs is to remember those programs that inspired me as a child. Because even today, those are still the types of programming that I see the greatest response to. If you can always keep in mind what drove you to love what you do, if you can replicate that and generate it and share it with the next generation, I think that's where true success rests. Wow, that I actually really appreciate that. That is much better um, inspirational advice than I was going to give for future historians, <laughs> which was going to be become a historian, play with dead people's hair. Well, no, okay, so here's, <laughs> here's the other admission. There's no one who got in the museum field that their real reason for joining wasn't because they wanted to touch dead people's stuff. <laughs> <laughs> That's actually probably the primary goal of most people. <laughs> yeah. That's probably in one of those, you know, Dictionary of cynics, like definition of historian, fetishist who yeah. wants to play with dead people's stuff. Yeah. <laughs> it's a whole new era of iconography. <laughs> there you go. <laughs> yeah, we can justify it academically all we want, <laughs> but it just For comes sure. down to we want to touch cool old stuff. Yeah, yes. exactly. I did have a friend, and I will not say the site that he was at in case he does not want me to reveal it, but he uh, did call me very excitedly one day to tell me that he found the subject of their museum and their house museum that he worked at, that he found her underwear. <laughs> oh, wow. <laughs> in uh, an old drawer within the house that no one had ever gone through, and he was very excited about that. And so that's the type of people that museum people are. <laughs> 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 <Okay>. Interesting creeps. <laughs> yes. <laughs> Let's not invite them to Thanksgiving. <laughs> but do invite them to interesting dinner parties yes. true yes if there's alcohol then by all means bring them in yes there you go anyway well let's move on to talk about some of the uh recommendations uh natalie do you have anything cool to tell us about today uh yeah there was a great book that came out last month called the lost indictment of robert e lee it's the forgotten case against an american icon it's by historian by the name of John Reeves, and it really questions the way that we look at Robert E. Lee today. And basically his argument is, is that history's been pretty kind to Robert E. Lee, considering that he led Confederate forces during the American Civil War. But what Reeves does is he looks at the immediate reaction to Lee in the years following the Civil War. After he charts that, he then starts looking at, okay, well, if there was all this hatred against Lee immediately after the war, what changed? And this really takes us through uh, the post-Reconstruction era and looks at the efforts of particular groups, uh, such as Daughters of the Confederacy and things like that, who changed Lee's perception into this man that even Dwight D. Eisenhower, who had commanded forces during World War II that he had Lee's portrait hanging on the wall of the White House. So how did we get from this period of 
absolute hatred for the mad to actually being revered in American society. And it's a great look at understanding how our perceptions of these historical figures can change over time and what causes those changes too. And that is certainly relevant today with all of our discussions about removing Confederate war memorials and all of that. It absolutely is. What they mean to the community, what they what they represent, when they were erected Mm -hmm. and why they were erected. Yes. When and why is always a very important question to ask. Great, that sounds really cool. Uh, James, do you have anything for us? Yeah, so mine is not necessarily a long study or even a major historical study just yet, but NPR recently released an article with the fascinating title, 14,000-year-old piece of bread rewrites the history of baking and farming. And while I say that, you know, kind of tongue-in-cheek, it actually is pretty interesting. Um, It's the work of this archaeobotanist, and I'm going to um, butcher the name, but um, Amaya Aran's Otegui, who's from the University of Copenhagen, but was doing research in Jordan and actually discovered what she found to be the remains of bread from 14,000 years ago. And the reason that this is so important is because we date the agricultural revolution, what, 10,000 years ago? So the assumption was always that bread and those types of products came about as a result of humans settling down and starting to farm and starting to form these um these practices to utilize utilize wheat and different grains what this bread might reveal is that the opposite actually happened that hunter-gatherer societies actually utilized different grains and different tubers to develop bread and then as the bread became more and more a part of their culture that they then began to um, start to cultivate land and develop cereals and grains in order to continue to produce bread and bread-like products. So, you know, it's it's something that recently was revealed. Who knows if this will revolutionize what we know about history, but it just goes to show that we're continuing to learn more and more about history and uh, finding new evidence that might reshape what we know about the past. So to all of our students that think that history is just a list of facts and things that have already been written and we just need to memorize things, uh, it's a good reminder that history is, you know, an organic study of the past that's ongoing and we might find new information that makes us completely rethink what we what we knew about how humans developed. It's a pretty interesting article, short for those of us with short attention spans, and um, gives you something to think about when it comes to our ideas of history, especially ancient history. I love all these people who do these studies of what people were eating and then who sometimes try to recreate what it was exactly that they were eating and drinking. Exactly. I think if I well, you work know, in museums, I would like to do that. <laughs> I know. Some trained historians are playing with dead people's hair. Others are finding 14,000-year-old moldy pieces of bread. And then others of us are working in academia. A friend of mine in the uh, back in the, I think it was the spring semester this year, uh, actually taught an entire semester-long course on the, on the history of food and food's influence on the development of civilizations. It's amazing. I would love that course. Yeah. Very cool. Yeah. And whenever, whenever I get a chance, I, I try to pigeonhole him into giving me a lecture but at the same time, I also don't want to watch PowerPoints. So kind of a he bag. should be doing PowerPoints. He should be actually be recreating those recipes and bringing them in for the class to try. He's one oh, of those yeah. guys that's really good at cooking. And so if he had the time, I know that he would. It's just a matter of, you know, he's got like four other class preps to do. So he doesn't have time. But in, in a perfect world, yeah, that would, that yeah. would be an amazing class. Experiential learning at its finest. Exactly. Uh, yeah. yeah. 
I would sign up for that class. Yeah, <laughs> me too. So my recommendation, have either of you heard of a book series called The Lakeside Press? No. 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 All right, this is a weird story. There was a publishing company uh, called the R.R. Donnelly Company, uh, which published, you know, magazines. They didn't write the content of the magazines. They were just the publisher for it. And then back in like 1903, the head of the company decided that he wanted to create a product to hand out to employees and to friends of the company that would demonstrate like the the pinnacle of skill in the publishing field. And so he decided to start putting together this a book. Uh, that would basically represent the best, you know, the best bookmaking that is possible in 1903 or whatever. And so he created this book that it's that became known as the Lakeside Press. They they started publishing one book every year at about Christmas time, and they would only publish enough copies to hand out to employees and to you know friends of the company, investors in the company, that kind of thing. And so this one book per year that they created, they went all out on it. It was it's like a hardcover. It's it's small. It's like four inches by six inches, but it's got the gold leaf. It's got like full color images inside the book. It's got like the fancy end pages and everything. They're these beautiful little books, and they decided that they're going to they're going to publish one every year. And they decided that they for the content of the book, they decided that they would just look for out of print documents. And so the first one they published was the autobiography of uh, Benjamin Franklin. And then a year after that, they published some other similarly kind of obscure, old, out-of-print document like that. And then after a few years, they realized that every one of these books they were publishing was was basically a primary source on American history. And so they decided that going forward until the end of time, every one of these books they're going to publish is going to simply be a primary source on some aspect of American history. And so there's not really much rhyme or reason to which one they're going to use. Like they'll skip back and forth in time. Like one year they'll have, you know, the the Cortez uh, attacks on the Aztecs and then the next time it'll jump to World War II or something. So there's no like rhyme or reason or chronology to it. But every year, they hire a historian to basically curate the content of this of this thing, and then they publish it once every year. And again, they're not for sale, and they become amazing collector's items because, again, they're beautifully assembled, and they're really it's actually, the, the content is actually really cool. And from a historical perspective, it's really cool because it's all you know primary source recollections of what America was like. So anyway, I stumbled on this a couple months ago because I don't know if any of you are aware of the company called Half Price Books. Natalie, you may hear of them. I, I think they're kind of throughout oh, the yes. South. Yeah, they're a used book company that's throughout the Midwest and the South. I don't think they have any out in California. But anyway, they have a traveling clearance sale <laughs> that they send to different cities around the country. And of course, I go to it every year when it comes to Columbus. And I stumbled, I found this box full of these books and they're, they come shrink wrapped and everything. I've never heard of this thing before. And so I was flipping through them and there were like dozens of them in there. And so I went through and I picked like six of them that I, that I thought looked interesting and took them home and realized, and then I did some research trying to figure out what the heck is this company, this Lakeside Press and found out how valuable these things are. They were, they were selling them in this, in this box at the half price book sale for like two bucks each. But, you know, on the open market, they go for like 20 bucks each. (laughs) So I was like, oh, my God, I need to go back and buy the rest of them or something. I I didn't get a chance to go back and do it. So I'm still stuck with just the six that I bought that day. But but they're really cool. And so the one that I'm looking that I have started reading and I'm actually looking at right now is a collection of narratives on the San Francisco earthquake and the fire of 1906 where they 
collected a bunch of primary sources written by people who experienced the earthquake and the resulting fire and all of that. And it's all about, there's stories. One was written by a famous singer who was visiting uh, San Francisco at the time and was talking about how he ended up running through the streets in his pajamas because he was running from the fire. And there's a story of like socialite women who would just hire carts to drive them around the fire zone so they could just, you know, make a picnic of it and kind of <laughs> gawk at all the stuff that's going on around the city and all of that. It's really amusing, but it also has these really amazing, like, full-color, you know, engravings and uh, images and covers of, like, Sunset Magazine and stuff. And anyway, it's a really cool series of books, and I really wish that I had all, you know, there's like 113 of them that have been published so far, and I wish I had them all. But, you know, I've got six of them, and that's, that's a good start. That is a good start. I think about that a lot whenever it's the middle of the night and we feel the slight shake of an earthquake, and I wake up and I think to myself, what state of disrepair would I be in if I had to run out into the street right now? <laughs> and then most of the time, as as most Californians and most San Franciscans do, I just kind of roll back over and go back to sleep because a small rumble is nothing to be worried about. <laughs> yeah, and realistically, Which what are you going to re- do? Which sounds ridiculous from the standpoint of anybody who doesn't come from an earthquake area who, as soon as they felt any type of rumble, would probably dive straight into their bathtub or into a doorway and pray that uh, the entire place doesn't come crashing down around their ears. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, it's it's anyway, it's a really cool book. And it's really yeah, cool series, too. I wish, I, I, like I said, I wish I had all of them, but I'm not going to, I don't have that kind of money to drop right now. Anyway, uh, I think that about wraps this up. Uh, thank you, Natalie, for joining us today. Well, thank you for having me. Yeah, thank you so much. This was fantastic. And thank you all for joining us today. If you have any questions or comments on this podcast or suggestions for future episodes, please send me an email at workinghistorians at gmail.com. Follow us on Twitter at filibusterhist and follow us on iTunes and every other podcast app that you can think of. For James Fennessy and Natalie Sweet, I am Rob Denning. Have a good day. All right. Let's see how cheesy I sound doing this with people. Listening. <laughs> this is going to be great. <laughs> I, know. I think we did the. Did we do this with Daniel at the in Manchester? I forget. I remember. I remember at one point I felt really stupid because the three of us were sitting around a table staring at each other, <laughs> and I was talking, and I felt really self-conscious while doing it. I don't think we did, but that would have been really funny. Yeah. Oh well. All right. This we will be our first time intro then. Mis- we can hum some yeah. intro music for you. <laughs> yeah. You guys just make something up. It's even. <laughs> It's best if it's out of tune and makes no sense, though. Yeah. <clears throat> All right. <laughs> 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 <laughs>